Good morning and happy Mother's Day. A reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not gone grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Have you ever felt like you were made for something? Especially in times like these, times of crisis, hardship, fear, and anxiety, uh, times like these have a way of stirring up uh, deeper questions, spiritual questions. So even if you don't know what it is, haven't you ever thought to yourself, I feel like I was made for something, and my whole life is supposed to be all about finding whatever it is and then giving myself to it, immersing myself in it, surrendering myself to it. That is a universal human longing, but it raises the question, are human beings made for something? Are human beings made for something? For instance, hammers are made for driving nails, or pencils are made for uh, drawing or writing. If you try to draw with a hammer or uh, drive nails with a pencil, that's not going to work out very well because that's not what those things are made for. Are human beings made for something? Or is that feeling we have just a bioevolutionary drive hardwired into our DNA, but it doesn't really correspond to anything in reality? Is it just an illusion that helps us to survive? Because it sure doesn't feel like an illusion, does it? What if that feeling we have that we were made for something is there because we really were made for something? No one ever put this better than C.S. Lewis. He wrote, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy 
the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Made for another world. What does that mean? If you're exploring spirituality, maybe you're wondering, could this possibly be that that something that I feel like I was made for? Or if you're a Christian, maybe you're thinking, well, I already believe that. What does any of this have to do with me? We're in a series on the book of Revelation. This morning, we get to the first major section of the book, which is a series of seven letters from Jesus to the church. Now, some of you love the church, but others of you have had horrible experiences with the church. So what does the church have to do with that something that you were made for? Jesus tells us, but he has surprising answers for all of us. What were you made for? Let's find out by seeing three things about the church. We're going to see the mission of the church, the problem of the church, and lastly, the power of the church. The mission, the problem, and the power of the church, okay? First, the mission of the church. Now, um, we're only going to be looking at the first letter, but all of these letters share the same basic pattern. So each of these letters begins with a description of Jesus that corresponds to his message for the church. So you see that in this passage. It says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, lampstands is an image for the church, but notice there are seven of them. In the Bible, seven is the number of completeness. That means that these letters are not just to these particular historic churches at that time and place. This is for all of the church. So what is this showing us? Well, why is a lampstand an image for the church? Uh, remember, if you've been with us, we've seen that most of the images in Revelation come from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, when it talked about the temple in Jerusalem, the lampstand in the temple was an image. It represented the light of God's holy presence. So Jesus takes this image of a lampstand and he applies it to the church. So for instance, in Matthew 5, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp but they put it or, and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. See, Jesus is, is showing us here that the church is meant to be a lampstand. Now, here's what this means. When Jesus says the church is like a lampstand, he's saying that the church has the light. So, for instance, um, have you ever noticed that, um, what is light? light? Light represents life because nothing can grow in the dark. Or light represents truth because no one can see in the dark. Light represents hope as in a light at the end of the tunnel. Or light represents love, as in the light of my life. Um, light also represents things like beauty and joy. Now, think about this with me. Um, life, truth, hope, love, beauty, joy. Whatever we're made for, if we're made for anything at all, it is bound up in these things. Friends, in John chapter 8, Jesus Christ had the audacity to say, I am the light of the world. He didn't just say, by the way, I point to the light or I can tell you about the light. He said, I am the light. It's an incredible statement. 
When Jesus calls the church a lampstand, he's saying that the church is meant to be a vessel or a carrier of Jesus, the light of the world. But that's not all. Not only does the church have the light, um, think about it. A lampstand doesn't exist for its own sake, does it? The purpose of a lampstand is to make the light available to everyone else. So if you think about it, when Jesus calls the church a lampstand, here's what this means. God's mission is to bring healing and renewal to the whole world through Jesus, the true light of the world. And the way that happens is through the church. The church is meant to make the light of Jesus available to the rest of the world. It's not an exclusive club. It's not a secret society for elites. It's meant for everyone. Now, we put all of this together, and here's what this means. And I want to speak especially to those of you who might be exploring spirituality. Are you looking for light? Are you looking for life, truth, hope, love, beauty, joy? Are you looking for another world? Many people are. In fact, um, spiritual thirst, there's a tremendous spiritual thirst in our world today. So for instance, Tara Isabella Burton is a writer who's also one of the rising experts on American contemporary spirituality. She has a a new book coming out about this. And in the introduction, she describes a rave party that she was attending in a Manhattan hotel. But this party was no drunken chaos. She's describing the scene and and everything in it, everything at this party from the music to the performers to the costumes to the cobwebbed candelabras to the mythological decorations to the thousand people taking selfies as they all sing in unison, God is a woman. All As she describes this scene, Tara Isabella Burton says, in the middle of all this revelry is something profound. Whether its participants are fully aware of it or not, they are in the middle of a religious ritual. We are at the Holy of Holies for the religiously unaffiliated, the fastest growing religious demographic in America, the spiritual, but not religious, the religious mix and matches who attend Shabbat services, but also do yoga who cleanse with sage, but also sing Silent Night at Christmas time. The religiously unaffiliated make up about a quarter of the population, and almost 40% of young millennials here in the middle of hipster New York, these numbers are wildly higher. What are all these people looking for? Well, Tara Isabella Burton says, they're looking for the same things that people have always looked for in religion, meaning, purpose, community, ritual, transcendence. We're looking. We feel like we were created for another world. We've never stopped seeking it. The gospel says that Jesus is the place you find it. The job of the church is to help people find that in Jesus. But unfortunately, the church is oftentimes one of the biggest barriers to that. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the mission of the church. But next, we need to look at the problem of the church. Now remember, these letters all begin with a description of Jesus that corresponds to his message for the church. But secondly, most of these letters also have both an affirmation from Jesus as well as a challenge or a rebuke from Jesus to the church. And we see that here. There's an affirmation. In verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. 
Now, this is actually pretty interesting. Historically, we know from other letters that were written uh, at this time that the church in Ephesus was renowned for holding fast to the truth of the gospel. They would not tolerate any false teachers who were coming into the church and watering down the truth of the gospel. Jesus affirms the church for this, especially in Rome. We talked about this last week. Rome was a very pluralistic culture. There were hundreds of different gods, hundreds of different beliefs. Rome said, you're welcome to believe whatever you want as long as you worship the emperor. In fact, Rome had two official titles for the emperor. You know what they were? Lord and Savior. The reason Christians were persecuted in ancient Rome was because they refused to say that Caesar is Lord and Savior. Instead, they said, no, Jesus, and Jesus alone is Lord and Savior. Friends, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is not some slogan that was just invented 40 years ago by the religious right. 2,000 years ago, when Christians said Jesus is Lord, that was not just a religiously subversive statement. That was a politically subversive statement because it was in direct confrontation with Rome's claim that Caesar is Lord. The Christians would not compromise the truth. Now, we can relate to that. Back in the 80s and 90s, people mocked the idea of truth. People were saying things like, well, who's to say what's true? Truth is relative. Not anymore, especially over the last few years. Have you noticed this? There's been a shift so that the spirit of our culture has now shifted to say that truth is embattled, truth is under siege, and we need to stand up for the truth. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed it. Over the last couple of years, the New York Times has an ad campaign called what? The truth is worth it. In our culture, the idea of truth is sacred. We want to stand up for it. Jesus affirms the church for this, for standing up, guarding the boundaries of truth in that world. But then he also says this. There's also a challenge. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, here's what this means. When people asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Jesus said, well, you shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor. Or on the very night before Jesus was crucified, when he was with his disciples, one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, the church was passionate about guarding the boundaries of truth. But here's the problem. And I'll say it like this. The problem is we can be so concerned with building barriers around the truth that we fail to love the people we're trying to lead to the truth. We can be so concerned with building barriers around the truth that we fail to love the people we're seeking to lead to the truth. Or we could think about it like this. Um, in the Australian outback, there are two ways that, um, that ranchers go about keeping their cattle on the ranch. And the first way is they build a fence erect a boundary around the outside. The other way is by building a well in the middle. You know, you don't need a fence if you have something drawing the cattle to the center of the ranch. In the same way, friends, traditional religion has a tendency to work by building barriers. It's focused on boundary keeping. But the gospel works by drawing people to the life-giving well of Jesus. It's focused on desire, 
not on building barriers, but by removing them and drawing them to, peep, uh, to, uh, to Jesus. Now understand, there's still a truth claim here. You know, and in our culture, it's a phenomenally offensive truth claim. It says that there's only one well that can really give life to all people, and it's Jesus. But do you see the difference between these two things? Traditional religion operates on the basis of fear, guilt, shame, pride. It says, be a good person, live a good life, do the right thing. And if you do, God will love you. But if you don't, watch out. The gospel operates on the basis of desire. It says, come find Jesus. Come find everything that you were made for in him. You do not earn work, merit, perform, or achieve your way into this love. You simply receive it by grace. Now, let me speak to those of you who are Christians. Um, you know that keeping this balance between truth and love is one of the hardest things you can possibly do, but also one of the most crucial. Because the reality is that there's no such thing as love without truth or truth without love. There's no such thing as love without truth. For instance, if you love someone who's destroying themselves, whether through addiction or destructive relationships or something else, you know that loving them means telling them the truth. Love without truth is really just codependency. It's, it's dysfunction. But truth without love, that's bullying people. It doesn't really care about other people. It just cares about being right. Friends, in this passage, we, it, we see Jesus embodying the perfect balance between love and truth. There is nobody that was more loving than Jesus, and yet here Jesus is telling the truth to the church, but the reason he's telling them the truth is to draw them back to himself in love. And so you see that here when Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Jesus is saying, remember your first love. Remember your true love. Remember me. Friends, this is a love letter from Jesus to the church. It's a hard letter, but it's a love letter. And we need to hear this message every bit as much today as the church needed to hear it back then. We can be so focused on building barriers around the truth that we fail to love the people we're trying to lead to the truth. So if you're a Christian, what does that look like, practically speaking? Well, lots. But let me just suggest this. It means that we should practice what many people call generous orthodoxy. What does that mean, generous orthodoxy? Well, orthodoxy means right belief or right thinking. And generous just means that we're charitable, we're gracious, we're kind and compassionate towards the people that we're seeking to lead to the truth. So for instance, here's some things that a generous orthodoxy would mean. First, it would mean that we should become much better listeners. There are very few things that are more generous than listening well to people. Secondly, it means that we should become better question askers. You know, Jesus uh, was constantly asking people questions. He was constantly inviting people to share their story with him. Thirdly, it means that we should be much less anxious in the presence of competing truth claims, that we shouldn't freak out when people don't believe the same things that we believe. And lastly, it means that we should be far more comfortable with entering into a journey with people who are exploring faith and spirituality, that we should recognize this is a process. So how do we do that? And if you are exploring faith and spirituality, how does Jesus draw you to himself? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen 
the mission of the church. We've just looked at the problem of the church. But lastly, we need to see the power of the church. There's one last thing that all of these letters have in common. At the end of every one of these letters, uh, there's a promise from Jesus to the one who conquers. So we see that here in verse 7. Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, here's what I want us to notice about this. In Genesis chapters 2 and 3, when God created the world, it says that he also created a garden, the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. And in the middle of that garden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's only command to the first humans was that they not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the other tree, the tree of life that was in the middle of the garden, do you realize what that is? That represents uh, uh, an eternal life in, in a loving relationship with God. Friends, this is that something that we were made for, the, the life-giving presence of God. This is the well from which we were meant to drink. But if you know the story, you also know that the first humans, instead of uh, choosing the tree of life, instead, they chose the other tree. But instead of being a tree of life to them, it became a tree of death. They wanted to control their own happiness. They didn't trust God to give them the life that they knew that they were meant for. Instead, they wanted to grab hold of it for themselves. And as a result, it led to breakdown in their relationship with God. Friends, don't you realize that this is not just their story? This is our story as well. And here's what I mean. We all have something that's a tree of life to us, whether it's sex and romance or career and success or money or pleasure or achievements. We're always chasing these things, hoping, hoping that they'll give us something, but they never really give us what we're looking for in them, do they? Even things as noble as making the world a better place or being on the right side of history. A lot of times it's really just about us and our need to feel good about ourselves because we feel lost. We feel empty. We feel insignificant and insecure. Friends, um, we're all looking for that something that we were meant for. We're all looking for that tree of life. But instead of finding it in God, whenever we look for that in something other than God, it always becomes for us a tree of death. And you know what the result of that is? Relational breakdown with God. We're alienated from God. I mean, haven't you ever wondered why we're always looking for that something that we were meant for, but we never seem to find it? You know why that is? Because we look for it in something other than God, there's a barrier now between us and God. So in Genesis chapter 3, it says that the first humans were cast out of the garden, away from the presence of God, and now there was a sword guarding the entrance back into the garden, back into the presence of God. There was now a barrier at the entrance of the garden. The sword was a way of saying that there's been a cutoff in the relationship, and that in order to find their way back into the life-giving presence of God, they had to deal with that cutoff. The only way through the barrier was to go under the sword. And if you look at your own relationships, you see the same thing, don't you? Whenever you experience relational cutoff with someone, you know this. The only way that forgiveness and reconciliation can happen is for someone to bear the cost of what happened. And the greater the hurt, the greater the cost. 
Somebody has to go under the sword. Friends, we were made for God, but we're on the outside now. We're out in the wilderness and we're all looking, all our lives, we're looking for some way back into the garden, back into the center, back into the life-giving presence of God. How do we find that? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the glory of God. He's the very presence of God. But Jesus came to us outside of the garden, and he took upon himself our human nature. Jesus Christ became one of us. But then he went back to God as our representative in order to make a way for us back into the presence of God. How did he do that? By going under the sword himself. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, friends, do you know what that was? It was a tree of death. But by climbing the tree of death, Jesus made it into a tree of life for us. Don't you see? Friends, Jesus, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was going under the sword. But in breaking him, the sword broke itself. And now death is working backwards. Jesus died on the cross, not to reinforce the barrier between us and God, but to remove the barrier so that now the way is open to all of us, so that we can find our way back to the center, back to the life-giving presence, back to that life-giving well for which we were made. Friends, the gospel does not work by driving people, but by drawing people. Jesus conquered death by dying. And so if you're a Christian, then the one who conquers, that means that we adopt that same pattern in our own life. That means that the one who conquers is not somebody who's conquering people or defeating people. That the one who conquers is one who, who's not reinforcing barriers between them and God, but by removing barriers between them and God. That means that, that we are giving up our life. We're giving up our security, our power, our control, our preferences, giving up our self-righteousness, our pride, that we are not to be um, reinforcing barriers, but removing barriers and helping people to find their way back to that life-giving well of Jesus, back to the life, the truth, the hope, the love, the beauty, and the joy that are only in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, that means adopting this pattern in our lives. But if you're exploring faith in spirituality this morning, and especially if you're someone who's been hurt or damaged or wounded by the church, then as a representative of the church, I want to repent before you and ask your forgiveness. The church, we need to repent of all the barriers that we have erected that keep people from seeing the life and the light and the love of Jesus. Barriers of white supremacy, as, as we have seen all too readily in our world in these um, past months and years, barriers of exclusion, barriers of materialism and consumerism, barriers of greed, apathy, abuse, cruelty, oppression, violence, and a whole host of other things. We need to repent of all the barriers that we have erected that keep people from seeing the light of Jesus. But I would also gently encourage you, friends, there are barriers in our heart that keep us from God. Jesus died on the cross, not to reinforce those barriers, but to remove those barriers and to make a way back for you, back into the life-giving presence of God. The more you see Jesus dying on the cross, drawing you in, the more that reproduces the same kind of life in you. Do you see him? Is he drawing you? And is that life getting reproduced in you? Let's pray. Father, we praise you 
for the life and the truth and the hope and the love and the beauty and the joy for everything we were made for in Jesus. We pray this morning that you would help us more and more to see and to embrace and to enter and to immerse ourselves in the light of Jesus. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that you would help us to reproduce that pattern of life in our own lives, that pattern uh, not of of conquering, not by defeating people, but by removing barriers for them, by giving up our own life, giving up our own preferences and power. Father, make us more and more into the lampstand, the, the carrier, the vessel of the light of Jesus that you have created us to be. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.